Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests as usual today. We'll hear from the sociologist Edwin Ackerman about Mexico's controversial president, universally known as AMLO. And then we'll hear from the historian Marcia Chatelain about the important but underappreciated role black McDonald's franchisees have played since the late 1960s. First, Mexico. Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, has been president of Mexico since December 2018. He's a populist who has alarmed the Mexican elite and the international financial markets, who view him as irresponsible, even dangerous. AMLO has been heavily criticized for its handling of the COVID-19 crisis. But as you'll hear, my guest Edwin Ackerman defends his record. Mexico has the third highest number of deaths from the disease in the world, though when adjusted for population it falls to 13th. Better, but hardly anything to brag about. Edwin Ackerman is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Syracuse University. In the interview, I mentioned the presidency of Carlos Salinas, a time of deeply corrupt privatizations of state enterprises. Salinas, who was president of Mexico from 1988 to 94, and a god of the neoliberal pantheon while in office, arranged for political cronies to get those assets at very favorable prices. The most notorious was Carlos Slim, who got the state telephone company, Telmex, on very sweet terms, and it became the cornerstone of his now $52 billion fortune. After leaving office, Salinas got wrapped up in scandal as his older brother was charged with murder and theft of scores of millions of dollars. He exiled himself to Ireland. Salinas's public image in Mexico continues to be sub-basement level. Okay, here's Edwin Ackerman. You wrote a piece in Jacobin in March uh, in which you uh, were defending AMLO against charging, uh, mismanaging the coronavirus. Uh, how do you feel about that now? I feel the same way. The numbers obviously have changed, uh, but that was what was expected uh, from the very beginning. The person in charge of this, uh, Lopez Gatel, he was uh, foreseeing that the numbers were going to be uh, going up. If things went well, it was going to be a long pandemic. In that sense, you know, I stand by everything I said in that article. Obviously, when you're talking about tens of thousands of deaths, you know, there's no positive side to it or no victory of any sort. It's it's a tragedy. But no, I think Mexico just surpassed Britain for the uh, the third highest number of deaths in the world. Yeah, that's true. So total amount of deaths, it's up there in the top four, I think. You know, obviously, this changes once you break down this uh, compared deaths per million, where you get a very different picture there. I don't think Mexico is in the top 10. What is the population of Mexico? It's around 100 million? 126, 126. So the, the picture, once you put it in those terms, does change a lot, actually. And then, uh, of course, you can say there's an undercount, which there is, uh, something that's officially acknowledged, actually. But there's an undercount basically everywhere else except Belgium. People are saying that uh, or uh, classifying AMLO with, you know, Bolsonaro and Trump as uh, clownish deniers of the virus. You reject that categorization. Yeah, yeah. I really think there's no basis for it. I think partly uh, the characterization emerged because there was already uh, a hang up of, of, this, of this tree under the rubric of populism in some very abstract sense. We can get into a discussion, but I think there's really no basis for that comparison even. So that kind of narrative already existed a little bit. Uh, and then uh, at the beginning of this, in, in March especially, there were some moments of, of uh, gaps in communication, I would say, between what he was saying and what the public health officials were saying. To be frank, the gaps weren't as big as they were made out to be. They were mostly like programmatic contradictions between what he was saying and what the uh, health authorities uh, were saying. And then some really just disingenuous, I think, interpretations of things like, to give you an example, something that circulated a lot in, in, in foreign press, he, in, in one of the press conferences he held, and this is in March, he held uh, these two saint stamps, he said, uh, were given to him by the people to protect himself. 
got kind of fed into this narrative of the loony populist, the, you know, kind of faulty and, and also superstitious, kind of condescending way of like, oh, look at this guy. This is his plan for, for fighting the coronavirus is, is to hold up Catholic saint stamps. In the context in which he said it, it's pretty obvious that's not what he, that's not what he meant. But that's how it got fed into, into the narrative. And once that got off the ground, it's interesting, actually. I, I kind of monitored this as close as I could. That was a narrative at the very beginning in March in, 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 in the press, uh, foreign press and, and national press as well, which is kind of uh, overwhelmingly um, against, against Amluk. And then once it was clear that uh, there was a high degree of professionalism on the part of Lopez Gatel, on the part of the public health officials, the narrative kind of died down for a bit. For a moment, actually, the, the narrative was that he, that there was a gap between him and the health authorities, that the health authorities were doing well, but the problem was that they had to deal with, with AMLO. Once it was clear that, that the health authorities were coordinated with AMLO, then uh, the, a, a sort of re-emergence of a negative narrative happened. But that's how I would explain uh, the origin of, of that comparison. Let's step back some. Um, what is his political background, political tendencies? How would you characterize his so where he's coming from politically? Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's a very important thing to to point out because this is perhaps where where you need to know a little bit more of the specifically national references. Uh, that is to say, he doesn't come from a socialist left. He doesn't come from a social democratic left in the in the European sense. But he also doesn't come uh, like in the case of of some of the Latin American pink tide uh, leaders like Lula or, or or Evo. He doesn't come from uh, union militancy. He comes from the nationalist left wing of a party that was in power in Mexico through most of the 20th century. So his political beginnings in the 1970s are as a, a member of the PRI, which is the party that sort of inherits the Mexican Revolution, you know, begins in, in, the, in the late 20s, uh, governs all through, through the 20th century. And the party is notoriously uh, ambiguous ideologically, but it has, up until the late 70s, a pretty strong nationalist wing, which you could say is, a, is, a, is left in the sense of not only the nationalism, but a general commitment to Keynesianism, I would say, and developmentalist, state developmentalist, I would say. So that was in line with a lot of what was popular in Latin America, kind of state developmentalist, protectionist. Absolutely. So that's that's his formation. And then... In the 80s, there's a break. That left wing of the party uh, breaks from it as the party uh, engages in a full neoliberal turn. And that left break is the origin of a party called the PRD, uh, which is where he becomes even more politically significant. He becomes the mayor of Mexico City in the early 2000s under that party. He then eventually breaks from the party forms uh, Morena, which is the party that he ran with this time around. But again, the line runs through that left faction of the PRI. So that's very important, I think, to understand that he basically trained socially and intellectually in the context of that Latin American state developmentalism. Would it be fair to characterize him as having one foot inside the political establishment and one foot out? I think that's fair. Uh, the, the, he's been a professional politician all his life, really, like since you know a young age. And he's, you know, among other things, been the mayor of Mexico City, which is you know not only the capital of the country but a city of twenty million people. So when he gets the presidency uh, in two thousand nineteen, he's not you know an outsider in that sense. He's not like coming out of out of uh, nowhere. He has a very uh, long trajectory. Now, whether you could say the trajectory is within the establishment, I guess that becomes a little more arguable. He saw through this political career in uh, not outskirts, but in the opposition, I would say, to the to the establishment. Even the break with the PRD, this party that he was part of, is part of the PRD's own turn towards a kind of centrist neoliberal stance as well, in a context in which it wasn't clear that he was going to do better by breaking from them. It wasn't actually opportunist in a naked way, at least. It turned out to be good for him, but um, when he took the decision, it was a hard decision, I think. So anyway, that's just to say that he's definitely not an outsider uh, in that sense. He's been part of the political system all his life. Now, there were high hopes for him when he took office. Uh, that is going to be a major uh, departure from the orthodoxy uh, that has driven Mexican politics for, for decades. Could you just talk about the expectations and then uh, how he's lived up to them or not? The campaign 
main message, the main point that it made uh, was linking neoliberalism to corruption. The idea was that as opposed to how we usually think, especially in theoretical terms of neoliberalism uh, as a separation of the state and the economy, uh, the way that neoliberalism happened in Mexico, and it actually might be more uh, characteristic of neoliberalism in general, was the capturing of the state by all sorts of private economic interests. And the way this manifested was uh, in all sorts of forms of, of corruption, constituting a sort of political economy uh, unto itself. So the main kind of enemy of the campaign was something he labeled the mafia in power which was a slogan, but it also had a bit of, of analysis, I think, behind it, which is there is a specific political economy around corruption, and that creates a specific type of upper class that is not understood simply in, let's say, basic Marxist terms of ownership of the means of, of production, that the linking of this upper class to the state in particular formats creates uh, a particular fraction, a particular type of, of upper class. And that's that's what this term, the mind. Thinking back to the uh, the Salinas days, like you know, the, there were all those sweetheart privatizations that created a rich business class, you know, like Carlos Slim and such. Um, did that uh, formation maintain its power over the decades? Yeah, of course. There's there's that. So that that's one of the main things he means when he talks about the link between neoliberalism and and corruption is the the, the way in which the privatization process. Uh, happen, but there's also more tricky ways, uh, which is that the state outsources all sorts of functions, including social functions, to NGO-type organizations. And in many of these cases, there is a big set of intermediaries that administer the budget. And in the process of the state distributing the budget to the organization that is meant to do something like, say, childcare, there's a lot of stealing going on, for lack of a better term. Stealing in both direct forms and also much more complicated administrative forms. For example, uh, high administrative bloat, uh, things of, of, of that nature. So that's part of the system that, that um, as he understands it, at least, uh, of, of what neoliberalism uh, was in Mexico. And I would say that was the main message. That was what created the the winning coalition of uh, middle-class concerns against corruption and linking the fight against corruption with a redistributive uh, project, which I think is a pretty original move to make. To fight corruption, we need to promote a redistributive uh, agenda. So that was how I would characterize the, the expectations. And I would say there's been you know, significant advances. All of these things come with a series of limitations, uh, contradictions, uh, structural limitations, but also self-imposed limitations, calculations, and, and, and so on. And difficult to talk about in, in very broad terms, but yeah, if you want a quick assessment, I would say there's been significant advances in, in that regard. I can talk about some examples. So I don't know if what you might be particularly interested in. Okay, uh, just a moment. But this this kind of political uh, approach alarmed the Mexican elite and also international the international financial establishment. Right, he was not popular with the upper classes. Yeah, and he still isn't. That has gotten significantly worse. I was mentioning earlier that uh, basically the entire press uh, is against him. That the level of, of vitriol is really just in constant uh, ramping up. But then you also have the big business associations, two in particular, Coparmex and, and the Consejo Coordinador Empresarial, which are in open opposition, openly politicking against uh, the government, which is unusual, actually. Obviously, they're always involved in politics, but usually behind the scenes. This is a moment in which they are openly in the press, constantly criticizing AMLO and openly trying to organize the party opposition, which after the last election uh, is in disarray. He won by 30 percentage points, which meant like a really chattering of the party system as we, as we know it. So the opposition parties are pretty disarticulated. And it's interesting that it's in this moment that the, that the big business associations are stepping in to try and give the, the party opposition some sort of ideological cohesion to give it an, a, an, an agenda. So that is, is ramping up. Now, of course, it's uneven. He had, you know, he, he, this is something that can either be seen as, as a strategically uh, genius of him or a capitulation. He always has this kind of relationship with key figures, including something, someone like Carlos Slim, for example, of uh, keeping enemies close type of deal. So he can leverage that uh, every now and then that he has those connections. 
Uh, or uh, something interesting, for example, the renegotiation of, of NAFTA. He was in, in the U.S. Uh, recently uh, to sign uh, NAFTA. And I think that uh, moment, for example, is a moment for him to kind of legitimize himself as an as a interlocutor for the global elite, a normal person that can you know, administer uh, this, your interests in a way. I'm speaking with the sociologist Edwin Ackerman. And so you said there were some positive accomplishments. Let's uh, review one or two of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, in general, I would I would say two things in a sort of conceptual almost sense, and then and then maybe I can I can give some specific examples of, of what I mean by this. The first big accomplishment I think is that we're seeing a kind of reemergence of the working class as a political agent, as such. You know, it's been completely uh, disarticulated for for decades, and even though his project is not at all a socialist project in the sense of being organized around the tenant of working class uh, per se, it's a populist project you know, around the notion of the people versus an oligarchy. You do see this reemergence of uh, the working class as an, as an agent. This is partly due to some concrete things like a historic increase in the minimum wage, the granting of workers' rights to domestic workers, people who work inside homes, very significantly um, a labor reform that's attached to NAFTA that would facilitate union democratization. This is a key thing. Uh, there's a lot of unions in, in Mexico, but uh, because of the history of the 20th century, they developed kind of linked to the PRI in its time and to to the state and to the to the to the bosses in general, and getting rid of those unions is very hard in, in legal terms. It's just an impossible uh, situation that lasts years. If you form an independent union, it, it turns out you already are unionized, even though you didn't know. And to get rid of that uh, union, it takes you years. There's this very important reform that got passed that would facilitate that, that would uh, uh, allow for union democratization. And you see this uh, already happening uh, in the case, for example, of, of the city of, of Matamoros, which is a lot of maquiladoras. About a year ago, they had a strike uh, of tens of thousands uh, of workers and won a bunch of, uh, of, of things. This is an example to me of what I mean by this rearticulation of the working class as a political agent. It's not quite that they are linked uh, to Morena or to AMLO, but that they are emerging as an agent as a result of these uh, changes uh, promoted by, by AMLO. Now, in terms uh, of the cutting down of corruption, which I think is the main, the, the other sort of main point of of the project, I think the the important thing here has been to think about corruption, as I was saying, as as a question of of a specific political economy, as opposed to to simply uh, an issue of of kind of a few bad apples that commit certain crimes, however high profile they might be. So even though there have been some high-profile arrests. Uh, for example, the former head of Pemex was just uh, extradited from Spain, and he, you know, uh, under the accusation that Odebrecht uh, paid him and, and others to pass the privatization of, of, of the oil company a few years ago. So there's some high-profile cases, but beyond that, what I think is, is more important is Things like the creation of something called the Unidad de Inteligencia Financiera, intelligence, uh, financial intelligence uh, unit that is meant to specifically target bank accounts, follow the money, essentially, for both organized crime and corruption rings uh, in general. Or something like the cutting down of this whole infrastructure of fake receipts, companies devoted to creating fake receipts. It sounds minor, but it actually, by some calculations, uh, uh, amounted to almost 30% of tax collection that was being siphoned off through this fake receipts. Um, and so there's a big clamping down on this parallel uh, world of, of fake receipts. Uh, so those you know, are a couple of, of things that I can think of off the top of my head. People from the left are criticizing AMLO for what he calls Republican austerity because whether Republican or not, it's austerity. Um, what do you say about that? Yeah, I think it, this is a bit of a case-by-case -case basis. I, think that I, I would agree with the criticism on some uh, specific respects. Uh, in general, I think people are thrown off by 
by the notion of, of austerity itself and um, the idea that it's fundamentally not a left-wing thing. I think there, again, we need to think about the national reference. We need to think about what exactly neoliberalism meant in the country. So neoliberalism meant bloated administration, luxurious spending. Um, that's what it meant. Uh, at the very least, that's what it meant politically. So in that context, the notion of austerity takes on a different, a different angle. And I would suggest uh, this can be arguable, of course, but just, you know, to kind of spark the imagination or curiosity of, of, of kind of left-wing people, uh, especially outside of the country, you could think of the movement to defund the police in the U.S. as a type of Republican austerity. That, that you can see very clearly there how the move to defund something can be under the right sort of circumstances, of course, but at least conceptually compatible from a left-wing uh, project. So I think that's the case here. The idea is basically a restructuring of the uh, of of the spending of the budget. Well, is it like um, an idea of austerity for the elites? I mean, it's like turn their medicine back on them. Exactly, exactly. It's the idea is cut from the top to redistribute through to the bottom. Now, this is a very good example of where he stands in both the left right uh, spectrum because it actually it works uh, in in both to kind of limit both both projects you could say because on the one hand it isn't austerity in the sense of a decrease in spending in general it's a restructuring of the spending to uh, prioritize uh, people at the bottom but at the same time, it's a claim that you don't need to raise taxes. This is what I think is the actual left-wing critique of AMLO, that at, at the very least that I agree with, right? Uh, or that I would you know, push myself. That Republican austerity operates under the premise that you don't actually need to increase taxes on the rich, that you already have the money, either you already have the, st the tax structure in place that that would allow you to have that money if you were to collect it and that's a big if in mexico so part of the project is to collect the taxes that are meant already to be paid but that once you are able to do that you have enough uh, to do to do what you want so it's a promise uh, that that you don't that you won't raise taxes on on the very rich it's a promise that you will charge them the taxes that they should be paying already and that they don't because of all sorts of loopholes and and, and deals and so on. But uh, but it is ultimately, to me, uh, a, a structural limitation that will have to uh, be surpassed if it's not, you know, towards the end of his presidency by, you know, by, by a next uh, uh, victory of the electoral left. Oh, okay. He's got, what, he's about a third of his way into his term? Yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah. there's a lot, quite a bit of time left to uh, work in his agenda. There is, there is, but he seems pretty adamant about about the idea that that we don't need to raise taxes. Now, is he adamant out of political calculation that there's a, a impossibility of of that project just in political terms in the present, uh, or whether he actually believes this in principle? I think is is hard to know. I would think it's the first one that. He basically thinks there's no political conditions for a project that calls for uh, increased taxes. And the reason why there's no political uh, conditions for it is because of corruption. It has mined the legitimacy of the state so much that basically every sector other than sort of very programmatically committed left-wing sectors will immediately you know, reject the idea under the premise of like, well, you know, what is the state going to do with the money that they charge? Just gonna, they're just going to, you know, steal it or waste it or something. So that uh, there's a weird irony. This is another arguable point to me, but I, 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 I think there's a basis for this, that uh, Republican austerity is actually the condition of possibility for, for a subsequent increase in, in taxes because it allows for the state to re-legitimize re itself as, yeah, as, a, as a legitimate entity. If you could just get the rich to pay the taxes they're supposed to pay, that would be the tax increase. <laughs> that was Edwin Ackerman, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Syracuse University. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
or some of Teenage Head by the Flamin' Groovies from 1971, a rare bit of politics from then there. Next, McDonald's and Black America. Though the chain originated and initially grew in white suburban America, since the 1970s it's become much more urban and with a strong black clientele. How did that happen? Turns out it was part of corporate America's response to the racial uprisings of the 1960s. Specifically, the company developed a cadre of black franchisees to deal both with community unrest and make money. Here to tell the story is Marcia Chatelain, Associate Professor of History at Georgetown and author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, published by Liverite in January. Marcia Chatelain. The fast food industry is young in the 60s, the final days of Jim Crow, but how, how did the young McDonald's deal with the Jim Crow era? Well, this was the part of my research that I found so illuminating because when we think about the struggle to integrate public accommodations, we often associate it with um, iconic brands like Woolworths or Katz's Drugs, a lot of relics of a different retail landscape. But McDonald's was actually at the center of many fights for desegregation. And in the book, I talk about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee having a campaign in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to stop segregated um, service at McDonald's. The same thing in Memphis happened, and after the sit-in movement um, ignited, after February 1st, 1960, there were actions against McDonald's all across North Carolina. And so while we associate McDonald's with that period of mid-century Americana, and we also associate it with a lot of the urban landscape of the 70s and 80s, it has this really important history of the 1960s that few people are aware of or reference when we think about the struggle for civil rights. Now, the early McDonald's is very much a suburban thing, right? The McDonald's themselves, but also Ray Kroc in the early days. So they, they viewed it as you know, a place you get to by car, the outside, not in cities, but in, in, in the suburbs, right? That was the original concept. Absolutely. So that type of fast food drive-in was originally associated in cities with people staying up all night drinking, uh, workers. And then when the drive-in went to the suburbs, it was considered something for the middle class to do as a treat for their families. There wasn't indoor uh, dining and that you went and hung out outside. It was a place for teenagers to meet up with each other. So it was very much constructed as a brand that would serve people in the suburbs. And Ray Kroc was very intentional in creating um, franchise opportunities for people in those areas. The franchise structure, that's present from the early days of McDonald's, right? The McDonald's brothers originally, when they kind of came up with the concept of McDonald's in 1940, imagined it to be kind of their own little crown jewel. And they did some franchising in Arizona and a few in California, and there were some copycat brands, but it was Ray Kroc who really introduced the model to McDonald's and created the infrastructure of what we recognize as McDonald's today. And franchising was the key for McDonald's success because at the heart of franchising is a relationship in which the parent company is allowed to set the terms of engagement and the franchise owners have to generate the revenues and abide by the rules. Now, the franchise owner is always in a difficult position, like stuck between <laughs> the workers and, and the big bosses. I mean, they're, they're certainly capitalists in some sense, but um, in a subordinate way, right? They bear a lot of the risk and the company transfers a lot of the risk to them. Absolutely. So franchising is all about determining risk and, you know, who carries liability. And with franchises, I think that they're often associated with these brands that we consider really powerful and almost invincible, your McDonald's, Taco Bell, Burger King, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. But there are a lot of different types of franchises. And even though they're recognizable brands, it doesn't mean like the franchise owner is having the easiest time making money. We've seen the proliferation of franchises that have low entry costs in which a lot of people who are new immigrants, people who are barely out of the middle class, or even in, among the working class who invest in these vehicles and find it really, really hard to operate. Subway Sandwiches is a really good example of a brand that kind of has overexpanded because the entry costs are on the lower side, but it's really, really hard for franchisees to manage those businesses. 
So how did um, McDonald's make this transition from uh, being something that was a largely white and suburban um, entity into uh, something that is now thought of as, not exclusively by any means, but very important ways, uh, a black and urban phenomenon? Well, the pivotal moment of McDonald's expansion into black communities happens after 1968, after Dr. King's assassination in Memphis. And just like in our moment right now in 2020, there are a lot of conversations about what does racial progress look like. And in the analysis of the hot summers and the analysis of the uprisings after King's death, there was this concern about whether or not African-American communities had access to retail services and who owned those services. So the push for Black-owned businesses was an issue that was stirring among members of the civil rights community. It was something that Richard Nixon, who was running for president at the time, endorsed. And there was a corporate shift in sensibilities about how to address a consumer market that had long been excluded. And so you have these kind of forces, governmental, private sector, as well as civil society activists, kind of coming together and really investing in this idea of McDonald's franchising as not only a business opportunity, but also an extension of a validation of consumer citizenship by having the McDonald's available in African-American communities. And there was also an element where some white franchise owners didn't want to do business in black communities or in communities that were shifting in racial demographics and that opened the door for black business people to become franchise owners. Martin Luther King plays an interesting role in this because you know, he's late in his life, he's turning fairly anti-capitalist in a pretty militant way. Um, but then there is also that you quote that passage about you know, how black America would be what, the ninth largest economy in the world just by itself. And we need to you know, throw around our economic weight. So King, you know, on one hand, radical anti-capitalist, but on the other, um, they, they gave something to this, the kind of black capitalist movement to draw on. Yeah, you know, King's last oration is, I think, one of the greatest speeches of all time. And people often point to it because toward the end, it, it's so deeply prophetic. He talks about attempts on his life and he talks about surviving. And he says, you know, famously, I may not get there with you. And then the next day he's assassinated. And so many people know the very end of that speech. But if you listen to the entire thing, and I highly recommend you do, you can find it on YouTube. Um, he's talking about the economic power of African-Americans, and he's talking about boycotts and selective buying campaigns. And he talks about how the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization, is being very thoughtful about how they spend money. They're putting money into black banks, and they're making sure that they're insured by black-owned insurance companies. And so in one way, people don't see that part of the speech, but he's talking about economic measures in order to confront the excesses of capitalism. Because the reason he's in Memphis is a sanitation workers strike. And he talks about the importance of selective buying and boycott so that everyone feels the pain, not just the sanitation workers. The consumers are withholding in their own purchases. The companies are feeling the economic impact in order to bring the workers justice. And so, yes, King was becoming clearer in his voice in his critiques of capitalism. And yes, he was working on this poor people's campaign, but he was also recognizing the power of um, economic protest in this moment in order to facilitate change for working people. After his death, there were um, a lot of confrontations uh, with McDonald's. The, the thing in Cleveland it was particularly um, intense. Uh, could you talk about that, uh, the Cleveland boycott and, and the politics of that? Yes. So, one of the things that fascinated me about this topic is that I had grown up in Chicago hearing the stories of the success of African-American franchise owners. And as I dig, um, as I dug deeper rather into that story, people often tied it to the social changes and the progressive wins of 1968. And knowing what I know about civil rights history and the history of activism, I thought to myself, well, there's got to be more than this. And what I started to uncover in the book writing process was that there were all of these very nuanced conversations about what kind of relationship McDonald's would have in Black America. And in cities like Chicago, where the first African-American franchise owner 
was installed and reopened a restaurant, you know, this was really celebrated and praised as a community solution in the sense that it could provide jobs, it could provide training for young people, that it was this kind of crown jewel of the community. But in Cleveland, it got a little bit more complicated because uh, McDonald's was very popular in African-American communities. African-Americans weren't being denied service and all the franchise owners were white. And so I capture in that chapter a group called Operation Black Unity, and it was an umbrella organization of local civil rights groups that had advocated a boycott of McDonald's, not because they were refused service, but because they believed that they should have a voice in determining who would be a franchise owner in their community and to prioritize black franchise ownership. And that boycott was so fascinating because you start to see the forces that converge under capitalism. You have a newly elected black mayor who's trying to keep his job. You have these activists who are saying that we're not against capitalism, we're not against making money, but the money should be in our community and reinvested. And then you have McDonald's corporate, who has very little experience in black communities, but is already kind of crafting a vision of how they're going to mediate these types of conflict in order to grow their consumer base. And so this conflict, I think, is really illustrative of Um, ways to think about the answer to the question, what happened after King's assassination in terms of the civil rights landscape? So what did happen in Cleveland? There was this very intense confrontation, uh, boycott, uh, and then what emerged out of that? So there's a boycott of McDonald's, and there are a lot of very colorful characters. And at the end of the conflict, um, McDonald's arranges for the installation of black franchise owners in McDonald's, and they did not allow the community to vet who would have access to this business. And one of the models that was not necessarily sustainable, but I think incredibly creative, was that a community development corporation, a model of local level investment where you use federal funds and private funds and foundation funds to create different opportunities, they decide that they're going to franchise a McDonald's and they are going to create a system where individual people in the community can kind of buy an ownership stake in the franchise and that the profits would have a way to be reinvested in the community. And while from our 2020 perspective, this may seem very unusual, these types of businesses in Black communities as a vehicle for redevelopment or economic opportunity was a very common proposal uh, throughout the late 60s and early 70s that often confronted the realities and the costs of doing business. But it showed that in Cleveland, McDonald's wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, despite having to absorb the negative press or the critiques of activists, that they were ultimately going to be in control of the process of how they grow in Black communities. I'm speaking with the historian, Marsha Chatelain. Okay, and then there was another uh, interesting conflict um, in Portland, where uh, the Black Panther Party, (laughs) nominally a revolutionary socialist organization, was uh, in confrontation with McDonald's in this town that was... Uh, or a state that was uh, explicitly founded as a whites-only state. What what was that uh, fight about? I really appreciated that there was archival information about this conflict because I think it's so important to tell stories of African-American people everywhere. And when we think of Portland we and we think of Oregon, we think of a place that has been um, exclusively white in some eras and then um, circumstantially white in others. But uh, Portland, um, Portland's Albina neighborhood is where this conflict happened in which a group of activists uh, with the Black Panther Party organize against McDonald's because they won't, uh, they won't contribute to the free breakfast program for children, which was the signature of the Black Panther Party's uh, intervention in communities. And so what happens is they are accused of bombing the McDonald's in retaliation. And what's fascinating is it's not really clear what happened, if they were responsible for the bombing or not. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that this was other things happening, whether it's the FBI or surveillance or some other radical group. But all of this is to say that that conflict in Portland really highlighted the different ways that Black communities perceived McDonald's and created expectations for what McDonald's would be in their community. And so in Portland, 
it wasn't even a question of black franchise ownership. It was a question of how are they going to coexist with other African-Americans who are engaged in struggles against police brutality, against structural racism, and against violence, and against, um, you know, all of these issues that that neighborhood was facing. There's all sorts of examples. There's a neighborhood in Philadelphia that organizes against McDonald's because they say, you know, we've had enough of fast food growing in our neighborhoods. And there are other communities that, you know, feel like if they bend too much to McDonald's, McDonald's will take too much. And so I really wanted to highlight that there was actually resistance and organized attempts at slowing the growth of fast food so that we know that corporate um, you know, expansion, there's nothing inevitable, inevitable about it. It's a process and communities respond in kind. Okay, we get into the 70s now. And as you say that this was the era of black capitalism, Nixon had pushed it, but then, you know, it's moving out of the, the, the activism of the 60s, the revolutionary radical politics of the 60s into the more um, capitalist friendly 70s. Um, how did the uh, the franchise system grow, uh, the black franchise system grow um, in, in, in that decade? In the 1970s, McDonald's saw very early on the success of black franchise locations. They saw that franchise owners were able to turn very good profits. They saw that they were able to really um, turn around stores that had been abandoned. And so a group of black franchise owners in 72 create the National Black McDonald's Operators Association so that they can kind of represent their needs within the larger McDonald's corporate structure. And the irony of it was these men were doing very well and they were real assets to the company, but they still felt ignored. And so they create this kind of self-help organization to help expand. And so throughout the 70s, they also advocate for African-American advertising within the McDonald's structure. And this is where you start to get the targeted marketing ads that have become commonplace across all sectors. You start to get um, the philanthropic work of this organization with historically black colleges and the United Negro College Fund. They're underwriting sports on the local level. And I think that this is a moment where um, this idea starts to calcify that in some communities, McDonald's is replacing or augmenting um, the state, because the state has left behind a lot of predominantly black communities. And so the influence of McDonald's and black communities extends far beyond the food or the experience. And it's really about this deep desire to invest in your community locally and to buy black. At that time and into the 80s, uh, McDonald's was really developing the skill of marketing to uh, black consumers. You know, there's a controversy over the drop G's and such. Uh, how did they do that? Uh, and uh, how successful was it? Well, McDonald's hired uh, Burrell Communications, a Chicago-based uh, advertising firm, to help them reach African-American audiences. They also used the services of Viewpoint, Inc., which was a market research firm that specialized in black consumer tastes and sensibilities. And they just start producing content. Some of these ads are really uncomfortable to look at today uh, because they're um, either corny or a little um, racist. And at the same time, they're really important because McDonald's is making an effort to talk to black consumers in ways that feel consistent sometimes or genuine sometimes with the world that they live in. And so you have the depiction of people with afros or dashikoyis, Afrocentric jewelry. You have the use of black celebrities in advertising, which is really important. And you also have a number of peripheral activities that will become more and more important um, into the 1980s, including uh, support for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the creation of ephemera for Black History Month, uh, there's a competition that McDonald's sponsors where families can get a trip to West Africa, and it's tied into Alex Haley's roots. So there's all of these different ways in which McDonald's is trying to really ally itself with Black cultural arts and social activities, and it's really effective. Yeah, I was going to say, it, um, it was not perceived as exploitative or condescending. It was actually, it worked. I mean, I think some people might have had some thoughts about it, but if you think about the landscape in which this is evolving, there's so 
few opportunities for representation. And some of the representation is actually really like exciting to see whether it's double Dutch or black fraternity and sorority stepping or singing or gospel music. You know, some of these commercials are like miniature movies and they really do capture um, a form of creative expression that is really pleasant and exciting to see. Now, if we look back at the original strategy, though, that poverty of the broad black population was supposed to be reduced by the creation of this class of franchisees. But creating a class of franchisees makes a few people rich, but it doesn't really do much for the broader population. Absolutely. I so, mean, yeah, how do, how do we reconcile this? Did, did anybody ever figure this out? Well, I think that what's interesting is that we have seen this logic played out among African-American communities and other communities that make very strong cases before the state to say, these are the resources we fundamentally need. These are the things that need to happen. And what's thrown at them is a business opportunity that people are not poised to seize. Um, it's, it's the same kind of market logics that say, you know, we have families that are really struggling and we have a high school completion rate problem in America. And the answer is everyone needs to learn how to code. You can invent an app. And it's like, okay, but what are we going to do about police brutality? What are we going to do about hunger? What are we going to do about affordable housing? And so McDonald's experiment, grand experiment, yes, it helped enrich a lot of individual business people. It helped get some people rich and their wealth trickled down into creating some jobs for some people and philanthropy. But these are not sustainable practices for economic justice. I'm curious about the, the sociology of the franchisees. Uh, do they exert some kind of leadership role in the black community? Are they like in their own little world? What is the, the relation of that class or subclass to uh, the, the, the folks below them? Well, I think what they are is um, a consistent part of history of African-American business people often being the unelected leader of Black America, whether it's in the period during Jim Crow in which Black business people are negotiating with the state for a high school or for access to some services, or if they're negotiating on behalf of someone who may be in danger of, you know, being killed by a police officer or lynched, you know, all of these ways in which the person with money and influence is able to play this other role continues in the franchise or relationship to the larger community. I remember growing up, black franchise owners being the people I see on you know television, uh, here on local radio. And so I think that in some of the communities, especially since they tend to operate in predominantly black communities, they're fixtures and they're important fixtures and people really look up to them. I think that um, the problem with having business people as this kind of unofficial spokesperson or negotiator is that they also are working in the interest of themselves and their businesses. And so how much they're willing to risk that in order to advocate for people will always be limited. And this is why I think there needs to be a very strong separation between the kind of role of business and the emphasis and the focus on a robust public state and a public good that serves all people. And finally, there's an interesting angle here on a lot of you know, the, the kind of upper middle class tutting of poor choices, poor dietary choices among black people and getting diabetes and getting overweight and uh, damaging their health and, you know, blaming it all on bad choices. But um, those choices have been shaped by the, 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 the kinds of phenomena you're writing about, right? Absolutely. I, you know, I wanted to write a book about our ideas of health and nutrition and crisis um, without focusing too much on the food and not focusing too much on the calories, but really thinking about the socio-political climate that created this. And so, you know, my concern is that any health intervention, any conversation among nutritionists or public health people that is outside of history is not effective. It's not helpful. Um, knowing the political and social context in which McDonald's arrives in Black America and plants its flag, I think is so important if we want to think about respectful and thoughtful ways to not only engage people about their individual choices, but to infuse a critique of capitalism and a critique of state failure in how we assess um, whether or not a hamburger is a good choice or not. Because I think that when we take 
the bigger view of what social structures have failed which communities, then we understand why fast food is a logical choice, why sometimes it's an emotional choice, it's an affective bond, that if we have any interest in breaking or reorganizing or even questioning, we have to understand this context and this history. That was Marcia Chadlin, Associate Professor of History at Georgetown and author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, published by Liverite. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Burgers of Wrath by Jella Biafra and Mojo Nixon. Till next week, bye. Oh.